Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. And instead of saying we are winding down, we are literally at the last Parsha, the Zot HaBracha. And Avi, I'm going to start right in with it. The Zot HaBracha, we have the Bracha from Moshe. And we often give Brachot to each other. Uh, fathers and mothers give Brachot to their children. We have the Kohanim who give, the Kohanim who give Brachot to the people. We always refer to brachot as something coming from Hashem. And yet, I would argue that not only do we not need to offer a bracha to Hashem necessarily to bless Hashem as, as we translate bracha as blessing, but at the same time, the, the brachot generally come from person to person or sometimes person towards God. But the idea that we need to get blessed or have a bracha from God, can you differentiate this? Because I think there's a lot of nuance here, and I don't think the translation of blessing fits the same in all the contexts. So I'm going to fully agree with you. I think that when we translate anything, we lose some of its original meaning, and that is certainly the case here. So there are multiple types of brachot in the Torah, when we are talking about a bracha, or specifically v'zot ha-bracha, we are talking about the blessing that parents would give to children predominantly on their deathbeds, or what they believe to be their deathbeds. And so if we go back, we see that Avraham gives a bracha to Yitzchak. Yitzchak gives one to Yaakov and Esav, although it is a bit before he passes and that Yaakov gives to his sons a bracha. And so Moshe is continuing that to B'nai Israel, Even though they aren't his direct children, he is giving them bracha. And that bracha is a, a hope for them for the future, or even perhaps a prediction for them for the future. And so I would say there is a parallel here to the bracha that parents may give their children on a Friday night, right? Um, certainly the idea is that that parent is wishing well for the child, and many parents have a custom to not just say the traditional words, but to add their own intentions and hopes for the following week, for the following year, depending on when that bracha is given. So let's call that bracha type one. Then there is bracha type two. 
Bracha type 2 is really a rabbinic structure. It is the brachot that we use when we are eating food. It is the brachot that we use when we are doing tefillah. And it has a much more formulaic structure, one that we are probably familiar with. It usually starts, Baruch Hashem, sometimes continuing, Elokeinu melech haolam asher kideshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu. And so those brachot were really structures put into place by the rabbis to help us recognize God's presence in the world and to thank God for those things. And I want to specifically say, this isn't a way of blessing God because God does not need our brachot. God does not need our blessings. And we can do a whole nother session at some point about how and why we pray and what the purpose of that might be. But in this particular case, I think that what's important for us to focus on is that the bracha is the recognition of God's power in the world. So when we are saying, and again, this is bracha type two, when we say, we are recognizing that it is God that has brought the bread or products that have led us to bread from the earth, and therefore we should be thankful to God and not mistakenly think that it is from our own power and our own abilities that this has come to us. So Akiva, on several occasions you have asked me about when Hashem hammers home all of B'nai Israel for the potentially negative things that they are going to do in the future. Here we have an interesting situation, I think it's interesting, where Moshe blesses B'nai Israel for things that will hopefully happen in the future, and yet he differentiates them by their tribe. And I was hoping we could have a discussion about when we should differentiate by, uh, by child, by individual, by group, and when should we be clumping people together. And I'm thinking specifically, since this is a bracha, in terms of compliments, right? Um, and we can talk about complimenting somebody and, right, I, I know from my own experience working with students and, and we're trained to say, right, when you're going to compliment someone, first of all, it should always be authentic. It should be something that they have control over as opposed to something that they don't have control over. Um, but I'm hoping you can add to our understanding of that. So both when do we speak to the individual or a small group versus the whole, and how do we best complement people? So I think when you're figuring out how to bless or compliment someone, I think a lot of times the idea should be, let's say it's the case of your children. 
you are, you for sure want to try and encourage them with a compliment or a constructive criticism as a way that they can know what they're doing well and what they have room to improve on. And ideally, it should be within the confines of their capabilities. So, you know, your, your child finishes reading uh, a first-level book, they're, they're a kindergartner, they're so proud of themselves, they're excited, they don't ha- hand them a, you know, a multi-page text saying, all right, good, now let's see what you can do here. Uh, because you're setting them up for failure. And that's obviously going to invalidate any possible compliment that you could have given them or any possible uh, encouragement. And and we've talked about this before and how to do it with ourselves, setting goals that are reasonable, setting expectations that are within the realm of what you're capable of. Um, and so I think that in that case, of course, you do want it to be individualized because each one of your children, even if they're twins, are still going to have differences and different things that they can do and different capabilities. At the same time, if it's something that's more generic, like let's say everybody cleaned up the playroom really well, you want to compliment everyone because not only is it valuable to complement the togetherness, but it also encourages the fact that sometimes tasks need to be done in a group and a group effort is important and valuable. And the same is true in the classroom. If you have the classroom and all of the students did such an amazing job on learning a specific topic and you want to reward them or you want to praise them, uh, sometimes it's not uncommon, or at least it used to be, uh, Avi, you'll correct me if it's changed, uh, you might you know, say, all right, we're having a, a party, we're having a pizza party, we're having a something. Uh, sometimes in the schools when they finish, uh, when they make a seum, right? Seum is, is a party for everybody. And that's a, probably a perfect example, right? A lot of times the individual makes a seum, and how do they celebrate? They celebrate with a community, and all of those opportunities are ways to praise the group. Yes, one individual's accomplishment is a wonderful big deal, and at the same time, it's praise to the entire group, and it encourages. That's the other thing. So, so praising and group praising should encourage. Similarly, if you're looking to discourage something, I think it would also depend. Public shaming generally not not so effective. So if there's one particular individual who has done something not good, you probably want to mostly let them know privately so that you can have an honest conversation about it and, and give an honest reflection on what needs to make change or what, what needs to change and give them an opportunity to see that and, and respond to that. Doing it publicly is just going to shame them. They're going to turn off and they're going to likely repeat it or up the ante. And anyone who does teach can think about how this works in a classroom setting and you can probably think of multiple examples where it's happened. At the same time, if the class as a whole perhaps has been disappointing in their efforts, it may be worthwhile to point it out in a constructive way. If you know that your class can has mastered the material better than they showed and it's not something that clearly you just need to redo the test and make it so that it's appropriate, then you can say to the class, 
I had higher expectations. Uh, or something along those lines. Something that's, that's within reason. We don't need to go over the specific of what to say because it would be very dependent on what happens. But yeah, you wouldn't want to necessarily point out the couple of people who did really well in that setting or the couple of people who did really, really badly and brought the class average down, you can potentially say to the group, I thought you guys knew the material better. I thought that, you know, you guys had a better understanding, so on and so forth, Uh, just like you would praise them. So I would say anything that's done in a group should be more of a generic, but still meaningful, still offering someone the opportunity to rise to the occasion. Similarly, you're not going to keep the kid who who did poorly on the test out of the pizza party. You're not going to have 19 out of 20 students at the pizza party and say, you, you need to go study instead. Again, not going to work. But you can encourage that the entire class can see, oh, wow, we really did well. It, It creates a group effort. So I think those are a lot of the important pieces to, to focus in on when we're talking about when to group and when to differentiate. Again, holding people individually to what they're capable of and sometimes pushing a little bit more, but not ridiculously more. And generically encouraging the group with constructive criticisms as necessary and not publicly shaming. So, Avi, we have this phrase at the end of Vizot Bracha, um, which we all learn that no one will ever be as great as Moshe. And we know that, at least from the text alone, the reason why Moshe is not able to go into Eretz Yisrael is because of the indiscretion with hitting the rock instead of talking to the rock. And, of course, uh, the Rebbeim say that there's a lot of other things that may have happened, but we do say that the greater an individual in their, in their leadership, in their public eye, what have you, the higher the standard they're held to, specifically with, insofar as to infractions from a religious standpoint. Um, and I want to be clear, I'm asking about minor things, not major, not, you know, like, unfortunately, some of what we found out with some of our public figures that they have done. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm talking about small things that great leaders have done. This is kind of, I I suppose if I had to use the secular example, it would be similar to the idea of one of our celebrities going out without combing their hair. It doesn't mean they're not a good person. It doesn't matter to us anything other than the fact that they were going to take their trash out, and like everybody else, they didn't comb their hair first. Um, But... My question is, shouldn't there be a certain point where we say this person is at this level and they're in the public eye this amount, they're this great, what have you, where we don't hold them to a higher and higher standard? Because I think at some point it becomes a little bit unattainable if you make this small infraction. And then it becomes the same as the, oh, they didn't comb their hair, so... Clearly, it's, it's a big deal. And I use that as an example because we do. We have pictures in the media all the time of this person didn't comb their hair or some other silly mishigas. And, and clarify this because I think we all know we don't hold children to the same standard as adults. We don't hold an am ha'aretz to the same standard as someone who is knowledgeable. But at some point, there should be a cutoff. 
And again, not with the level of knowledge that they attain and not with the expectation to a major thing, but the minor stuff. So in response, I'm going to look at two issues. One was, was this mistake that Moshe had really equivalent to something minor, like going out without one's hair combed? Or was it more significant? So Rashi is famous for saying that this was the case, that, that while this was a minor indiscretion, because of Moshe's greatness, it was the reason why they, he was kept from entering Eretz Yisrael. However, the Rambam disagrees with Rashi. And Rambam says that, no, this was actually a significant problem. Because if we look back at the story, what we see is that Moshe strikes the rock and no water comes out. And so he hits it a second time. Or I'm sorry, he hits the rock a first time and a trickle comes out. He hits the rock a second time and that's when the water begins to flow. And so Rambam points out that if he had spoken to the rock, this is a, a miracle of such high level that people would have no choice but to believe that it had really come from Hashem. Versus if you're talking about somebody who had lived in the desert for a number of years, finds a rock, hits it, and a trickle comes out, and then hits it again, and now it's flowing water. Well, now it looks like he just knows where to look for water. And so it's not miraculous at all, but rather somebody who is aware of his surroundings and knows how to find water within a wilderness. And so to that end, Moshe had actually taken it from being an incredibly miraculous event to a completely non-miraculous event. And it was because of this significant change and the fact that he took away the opportunity for B'nai Israel to see this miraculous event and to believe in Hashem because of it, that he was consequenced with not being able to go into Eretz Israel. However, that doesn't deal with two other pieces. One is, our, should our expectations for different people be different? And it also doesn't deal with one other piece, which I think is important, which was, would it have been good for the Jewish people for Moshe to go into Eretz Yisrael? And I want to suggest that it would not have been good for the Jewish people for Moshe to go into Eretz Israel, And in fact, part of the reason why Hashem buries Moshe, and we don't know where his burial place is even till today, is because when we look at what we have done as human beings and even as Jewish people to the kvarot, to the, to the burial places of famous Jews, we have turned them into shrines to a certain extent. Um, and while there is the idea of going to the kever of a rabbi, whether it's the Rambam or uh, the Rebbe or somebody else, and davening for zechut avot, for the merit of our ancestors 
to help us, we really would not be praying to those people because that would be considered avodazara. That would be considered idol worship. And so if these places hold a certain level of holiness because it is a place where people come and daven, great. But we should not be davening to those people because they were people. And it may have been troublesome that every time people felt a lack of leadership, they would go to the kever of Moshe and say, why can't so-and-so be like Moshe? And so we say, no one can compare to Moshe. The things that Moshe was able to do, no one else can do. And yet, we have to make do with the best of the leadership that we have today. In terms of, do we say that people have higher levels of expectations when they reach certain levels of leadership? So I think in America, we have idolized celebrity. And so to a certain extent, celebrity has become the measure we use to decide if someone should be a role model or not. And that's quite unfortunate because just because you're famous doesn't mean you're a good role model. And just because you're a good role model doesn't mean you should be famous. So alternatively, I would suggest that yes, sometimes when people take on certain mantles of leadership, whether it be as a rabbi or a community leader or a teacher, they voluntarily take on a mantle of leadership that then comes with certain expectations. If you are a teacher in the classroom, especially for younger children, you have to know that they are going to want to be just like you. right? Uh, I specifically remember a student coming to me and saying, I want my haircut just like Mrs. So-and-so because she's the coolest, right? And so students naturally look up to their teachers, at least until a certain age when they start to become more jaded. Um, and, and they look up to their parents and they look up to their rabbis, assuming that that is what has been taught to them in their homes. And I think as a community, we look up to our leaders who voluntarily take on those leadership roles because we appreciate what they do and because we think that if you're going to take that on, you should have, we, we want them to have high expectations. We have high aspirations for them. And while they don't always succeed in those high aspirations, they have to at least know that they exist. And so trying to live up to them is the least they can do. And while we are all human and we make mistakes and we fail sometimes, I think it's important for us to at least recognize that they exist. And can they exist at different levels for people of different um, communities? I'll say yes. So if you are a leader in a small town and you have... 500 followers in your congregation, that's one thing. If you are a rabbi of a major institution that, in, that, that influences the entire United States, you have a much greater responsibility and you have to know that. And if you are someone that people turn to from across the world to answer your questions, 
you need to know that comes with a different level of responsibility as well. And again, while people are human and they make mistakes and we should forgive them for that, at the same time, we have to recognize that those expectations, whether realistic or not, do exist. So Akiva, Yoshua has pretty huge shoes to follow. He steps into these shoes and he's done a little bit of apprenticing, but I don't know that there's any way to really be prepared to take on this role of leading the Jewish people. How does he follow this act? How does, he, how does he step into those shoes? How does he not feel like an imposter in trying to lead the people? So Avi, I'll actually add to your question because not only do we know that Yoshua feels perhaps that he is inadequate, but the Torah says he's not as good as Moshe. Flat out. Nobody will be as good as Moshe. So we know that the second from Moshe is already not as good. And I think that we all struggle with this at some point. Uh, anytime there has been a someone great in a leadership role ahead of you, right? and I'm sure you've probably had this experience where you started at a school, and how am I supposed to follow this guy? At the same time, there's also been those times when we come in and it's, oh, well, I'm breathing, so of course I can follow this person. And the truth is, is that neither one of those is necessarily accurate. Other than the Torah flat out telling us that Yeshua is not going to be as good as Moshe because no one can be as good as Moshe, we know that Yeshua knows he's not going to be as good as Moshe. And, and I think the idea is perhaps to... Rather than trying to be as good as, or better than, or not trying to be the same person, which really gets into the idea of the whole concept of don't try and be something that you're not, which gets back to your question of, am I being an imposter? Well, no, not if you're not trying to be the person that you're not. Um, if you are... right. If you are taking over a leadership role at a school, you're not going to try and be the leader that they were. You're not going to you're going to try and see what worked for them, what to continue, what wasn't working, what needs to change. And oftentimes what we know is the old, you know, caveat of don't make any changes your first year. And I'll tell you the same thing is true in in medicine. When I have a patient who's coming to see me, who was seeing a different psychiatrist, I don't try and be that psychiatrist. I don't tell them that I'm going to be that psychiatrist. Sometimes I find out if there are things that they liked or didn't like about that working with that doctor. At the same time, I'm my own person. And I do my own diagnosing, right? When I have that first evaluation, I ask them all the same questions over again. And sometimes they come and they say, why are you asking me all these questions? I told you I have ADHD, or I told you I have depression, or I told you I have bipolar disorder, right? Whatever they, 
whatever someone has told them 50,000 times ago, you know how many times I see someone who doesn't have the diagnosis that they think they have? Either because diagnoses change, the quality of, and presentation of the individual changes, or, and, and I hate to say this, but you know, I, I can say this without naming any individuals in particular. We all know that there are some people who don't necessarily do a good job at their job. And having a second look is sometimes important. So, or, or, or even a step further, maybe they're not a specialist in the same area as me. So maybe they don't know what they're looking at the same way as I do. And I'm sure you've experienced this too. Just like every expert experiences something in a different way than another expert, especially if it's an expert in a different area, even if they're similar. And so I think a lot of this is Yoshua doesn't need to be as good as Moshe. And maybe this is to the point of why why we know that he shouldn't be expected to be as good as Moshe, because it says very clearly, you're not Moshe, you're Yoshua. So you can try and lead the people, and of course, as, as we know, Moshe tells him, you know, good luck, um, because that's what you need. It's made very clear throughout most of the Torah, you need good luck to manage and lead B'nai Yisrael. Uh, same is true today. And at the same time, we have so many different leaders now, and even not too long into B'nai Yisrael being in B'nai Yisrael, there's so many different leaders because not every leader is going to have what you need and you need to have a lot of different area. And so even the fact, Avi, you and I were talking off, off the uh, podcast before about the fact that Nowadays, in order to do some of the things that some of the great rabbim have been able to achieve before, you would need hundreds of rabbis to sign off. Well, that's just it. In some ways, it is more complicated, and in some ways we realize it needs to be. You can't just take one person's opinion. You need to have a lot of say and a lot of figuring out. And you know what the truth is? Even back then, the Gemara has, you know, it's, it's not just Hillel and Shammai. Right? It's Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. And we just need to know how to get along and disagree and agree respectfully. So Yoshua doesn't have to be as good as Moshe, and he shouldn't try and be as good as Moshe. The people shouldn't expect him to be Moshe. He just needs to do the best that he can do with what he can do. Avi, we were taught that Moshe wrote the Torah from the, you know, came from God and, and Hashem told Moshe exactly what to write and Moshe wrote it. Um, you have to wonder if Moshe was perhaps feeling a little uncomfortable, especially with some of these last sentences. Uh, this is what my bracha is going to be to everybody and, and this is when I'm dying and this is as I'm dying. So... Maybe maybe clarify this a little bit, because I can't help but look at it as a psychiatrist and somebody's writing their own uh, their own eulogy. So it's a great question. It's a question that's brought up in the Gemara, and the Gemara discusses who wrote these final psukim. And one opinion is that it was Moshe, 
and as Moshe wrote these psukim, he was crying. And the second opinion is that it was Yoshua. And Yoshua recognized that part of his job in taking over after Moshe was to finish the story. And that's why it finishes directly where it does, right? So it talks about the quality of Moshe's prophecy. And as Yoshua's mentor, Yoshua speaks well and writes a beautiful eulogy of of Moshe um, and then immediately ends the book in the sense that with the death of Moshe this chapter both literally I guess and figuratively have come to an end and therefore if there's going to be another book it needs to be a separate book it needs to be the book of Yehoshua or it needs to be in this case, it is the book of Yoshua. <laughs> and, um, and so he begins by, by the book of Yoshua by actually repeating the theme that about, um, about Moshe's, Moshe's greatness and Moshe's death. And so if we look at the first chapter of Yoshua, it appears to be a direct continuation from the Torah, which isn't always the case when we're looking at at those specific haftorot or 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 how the haftorah continues. But in this particular case, the the story of how Yoshua begins and continues is a direct lineage, direct continuation of the story of Sefer Dvarim. Our question for around the Yontif table is as follows. We do give our children brachot, many of us, and sometimes we do it as part of the rush between Friday nights and dinner and, and shul and, and whatever else we're doing. But if we had the time to really sit down and write a thoughtful, meaningful bracha for each person in our family, what might we wish for them? What might we hope for them? What we, might we encourage them to do? And can you find a way to share that with them this week? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.